the valuable things that you learn from your family, right? It's like pay off your debt as soon as possible. Don't do that. So it's like, okay, you know, use that. But I wanted to move forward with what I loved instead of being beholden to some other entity where my soul was sucked dry. Right. So I was able to marry the two and just, you know, reduce my expenditures, bootstrap everything and do what made my heart sing at that time. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Julie Bergfeld. Julie's worked in academia and in technology. Today, she's a health, wellness, and life coach specializing in performance, stress management, and healthy habits. She's a yoga teacher, has a yoga studio, and is dedicated to her own mindfulness practice. One of the big reasons I wanted to chat with Julie was the following phrase. I don't remember where I saw it, but um, she said something like, happiness and wealth are not products to be chased, but rather gained as a result of a deep intrinsic process. We're going to get to that. But first, Julie, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Where do you call home? Thank you, Jonathan. I'm excited to be here. I am based in St. Louis, Missouri. Is that where you're connecting from today? Uh, Yes. Okay. Did you grow up there? I did. So long story about that. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, lived here through college and went away for quite some time and enjoyed it quite a bit. And family got me to come back here. And I've been here since for the past, oh gosh, 15 years. Lay a little groundwork for us. Did you, were you taught lessons as a kid, money, entrepreneurship, when you're growing up, what sort of stuff did you glean from, uh, you know, childhood? Oh gosh, lots of money stories. So I can launch into it like a genetic money story if you'd like, or I can give you more of a high level thing. Yeah. You want to start with genetic and then we'll. Yeah. So my dad grew up without a lot of money. And it wasn't that he didn't have money. His father squandered the money, shall we say. Mm. And so his mother was his provider and she sold real estate. She conducted estate sales in order to provide for the two of them. And so he grew up with an eye of, I need to provide. I don't feel safe you know, all those stories. And he started, he went to school and studied not finance, but economics. Knew that money was very important, went to law school because, you know, got to make money, right? I don't think he particularly enjoyed law at all. And so as a kid growing up, we, my sisters and I, we got gifts of stock, You know, I don't remember how old I was when I first got my stock certificate, you know, the first one, but it was like, oh, whoop-de-doo, I'm getting a stock certificate. I'd rather have a toy or something else, (laughs) right? But then he taught me, he would sit down, he would chart and weekly, he would teach me what he was doing with the stock market, you know, 
what you look for, why it's important. And I got really interested in that. This was probably, I was probably eight, 10, something like that. And I didn't start investing on my own at that point, but it really changed how I saw those stock certificates, those pieces of paper that we were getting because they were pieces of paper at that time. And it's like, wow, I own a piece of this company. It matters. I matter. My voice matters, right? And so I got very interested in investments and in particularly the stock market and money, even though, you know, I didn't go into money and I always claimed I was bad with money, bad with hmm. money, not bad with money, but it's like, I didn't care about that. But in fact, I did care about that. I started working part-time jobs as a kid to pick up extra money, you know, before I turned 16. And then when I did turn 16, it was like that fall, I turned 16 in November. And as soon as possible, I had a part-time job. Hmm. And yeah, go ahead. Do you remember, I'm just, I'm curious, uh, do you remember the first stock that he gave you? Do you remember the, what the company was? It was Eli Lilly. Okay. Yeah. It was Is it Eli the local company? No, no, no. Based in Indiana. And I think the part of that was because my grandmother was highly invested in Eli Lilly was a medical uh, pharmaceuticals. Yep. And um, she was a medical doctor. It's the whole story there too, not money story, but yeah, she was a doctor. And so I think that's where that came from. But yeah, go ahead. Did he, so he charted, he was showing you what he did on a weekly basis. What was, what, what other part of the stories? We know this because your grandma is a doctor. So this is why we chose this. What was the reasoning behind this stock versus a different stock? Oh, well, he looked at one was, I know he had this all plotted out too. He was interested. He was diversified in stocks, right? And I think that he was also thinking about well, what's the next one going to be, right? Mm. Diversification was one thing. He knew that it was a good investment at that point. And I can't remember then what he was looking for. He was always looking for high dividends. He, was, uh, he wasn't necessarily looking, not, but it was something that he believed in, mm -hmm. that he knew was a solid company. And it wasn't like he visited and, and met the people, but he looked at the financials. He looked at who, you know, their decisions. He, he looked at the more than just the numbers. He looked at the story behind the company. Yeah. What they were producing, the value of the company in that respect. And that made me really look at much more than the numbers and the story behind it. Yeah. I think at the, it's interesting because at the time, I'm just, I'm guessing you're eight or you're nine or 10. That's kind of the same time frame. I was probably nine or 10. I think at that time, the number one mutual fund manager was probably, God, what's his name? He ran Fidelity Magellan for many years. And he, his story, Peter Lynch, Peter Lynch's story was you just need to invest in what you know, invest in things that are close, invest in things you understand, invest in the story, not just the numbers, not just. So it's interesting to see that kind of come through and what your dad taught you as yeah, a tenure. Definitely. definitely. And then some of my first investments were ones that I knew, Haynes Brands. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason behind that was because Haynes owned Champion sporting goods product. And I was very much into sports at that time. I was like, oh, well, that's a no brainer. That's great. And, you know, I, so I knew that story, but then I also, the numbers were decent as well at that time. They weren't after a while, but, at, you know, at that time. So, so that was one of my first 
investments. Yeah, so I learned about money and finances from an early standpoint, from an early time in my life. And then I also knew that, you know, in order to get the things that I wanted, mm. and they were material at that point, I wasn't necessarily putting money into the stock market by the part-time job I was getting, but it was clothes and gas for the car and those kinds of things. I had to work and I really valued the fact that I was working in order to pay those things instead of relying on other people to give me money. Right. So did your dad was an attorney, right? So did he have his own practice or did he work in a large firm? Yeah, that's it. Well, okay. So yeah, getting back to the dad story, he initially, he worked for a very small company and I think he was very, very happy because he knew that he made a difference. Well, what happened was much different than nowadays. You worked for a company and you stayed at the company. Well, what happened was the company got bought out by bigger mm. companies and bigger companies. And so where he worked, actually, he was in real estate law and a bank bought out the company he was working for, a local bank here, Boatman's Bank. And then what happened was, and he stayed, Bank of America bought out Boatman's and he stayed. He hated it. Mm. Big corporation hated, hated, hated it. And I learned, this was more as a teenager, that you really need to do things that, yes, make money, but that are deeply tied to your values and that make your heart sing. Yep, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so... While money is not a bad thing, it has to align with all the other values that you have in your life. So I'm assuming that uh, there, there's a, a long story that gets you to um, the coaching. And you mentioned, I think, academia and technology. So before you get into coaching and teaching yoga, wh what did you do to develop that interest? The interest in coaching and yoga? Well, being entrepreneurial, you know, setting up your own yoga studio and then beginning to coaching other people. Sure. Right. So I'm assuming you're following your heart in this. That's why I'm, you know, I'm assuming your dad taught you this. You learned this lesson as a teenager. You follow the heart. Yeah, there was a turning point. So I learned the lesson to not follow on my dad's path because <laughs> he was so miserable. Right. Sunday night, it was like he, Jekyll and Hyde. He was a different person on Sunday night because he had to go back to a work that he really hated. But he knew that he needed to provide for his family. Right. Yep. He wasn't provided for. So that was he had to do that. Meanwhile, you know, investing like crazy in the basement, not in the basement, but, you know, doing all of this stuff in the basement that he did to invest and, and you know, still hyper providing there. But going to school, I um, I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to do all these things, but that weren't going to that I probably wasn't going to be satisfied with and that weren't going to pay me the money. So what did I do? I majored in French anyway, knowing that I didn't want to teach. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but that made my heart sing. And then it's like, okay, I graduated and what am I going to do? Well, I went to journalism school because at least I could, you know, I could write. I liked that and it might be able to make me some money. Well, graduated from journalism school and didn't really want to do that. And let's see. Where did we go first? Met my husband and we moved. He was finishing a PhD in chemistry. And so we, this was all in Missouri where I went to grad school and we moved to Boston. 
and I was looking for a job. It's like, okay, you know, just needed to do something. He was working at Brandeis there in chemistry and I had to do something. I looked and at that time there were actually jobs in newspapers and I applied and I got a job. And this was at a startup company working in technology. Hmm. They were looking for an admin. This was my first taste of small entrepreneurship and technology all tied together. Five people total in the company in tech, like when tech was really starting to take off. So this was early 90s. The 90s, yep. Yeah, early 90s. And I loved it. I got to do everything. I mean, yeah, there was answering phones, but I got to prepare presentations. I got to learn technology from the ground up. I got to learn about marketing and sales and just everything that this firm was doing, not necessarily on a, it was a consulting firm, but not on a consulting basis, but like the background, right? The, the behind the scenes stuff. And I was like, wow, that really appeals to me. Small company, you get to have a play in things. And, you know, the, the tech stuff was really cool. So I worked in that for a couple of years and really loved it. And then we moved to Texas. Mm. He got a full-time job. My husband got a full-time job teaching at Austin College, which is based in Sherman, Texas, in about an hour north. Well, now it's about 30 minutes north of Dallas. And again, it's like, okay, now what? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I started working in Plano. I was commuting there on a um, part-time basis at a company like building ads. So at least I was putting together some of the journalism background. I wanted to get into like newspapers, but that didn't Mm -hmm. really pan out. And that got really boring, commuting to back and forth to Plano for a while. So I started talking. There was a social event at the college where he was working, and I met the, the IT director. And he knew that I was looking for a job. And we got to talking, and he started giving me little assignments. And he was, like, teaching me how to look behind the scenes at web programming and you could you could do that and i started doing it and following his little tutorials and learning how to do web design is this still late 90s ish coding this was yeah yeah this was this was 90s so i'm curious there's two questions that are, that are percolating one is you followed your husband to boston you followed your husband to texas do you think and there's the second guessing on this is I think that hurt your ability to ground and find good work and build your own career. Would you do that again? Would you yeah. recommend that? It definitely hurt my ability because I was following him. However, I was learning things and figuring out what I wanted to do, what mm-hmm. appealed to me, what didn't appeal to me. And Of course, none of it had to do with journalism nor French, right? That didn't really matter. But I really fell in love with technology. I fell in love with the the aspect of learning, for one thing, and that plays into coaching and yoga. But And this has nothing to do with money, but it does in a way. This is so rich. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but I found my way if you will. So despite the fact that I wasn't leading the charge, if you will, I found my way and found things that satisfied me. Do you have a sense of what your thought, and this is a a while ago, but what your thoughts, what did success mean at that point? How did you define success when, you know, late nineties? 
Oh, at that time, I was still very much about money in the bank, status. Mm. What do I know? Right. I was thinking about, so I had a master's degree. I was thinking about a PhD in something very much about external focus, proving things to other people, right. Still living up to parental ideals of success. And you know, I do this now, but maximizing savings, you know, making sure that all of the, you know, 401k that everything's maxed out and topped up and, you know, still investing this whole time as well. But success was basically more than being sufficient, but being hyper vigilant about over providing, if you will. I mean, it was just the two of us. We never had kids. Yeah. But we always had more than enough. When did you? I know that you also are a marathon, an ultra marathoner. When did that start? Were you already doing it at that point? I got into ultras, yes, living in Texas. So marathons okay. came before. My first marathon I did right after I graduated college. And then ultra marathons came in when we were living in Texas. I fell in with a group in Texas. They did trail running. Mm. And yeah, and they convinced me to run this race. I'm like, yeah, it was a 50K. So 50K is just over 30 miles. So it's really... It's just a little bit longer than a marathon. you know. It's insane. It's just insane. Okay. <laughs> and they're like, hey, come down, do this race with us. What I didn't know was the race that they convinced me to do was the USATF trail marathon, tra trail 50K championship race. And I won it. I won the race. I had no idea what I was into. Wait, wait, you, this is your first ultra marathon and you won, won the it. final? Yeah, I won it. How'd you um, even qualify for it? I mean, you've never done well, it before. At that time you didn't. There was no qualification. You just you registered for it. So the, again, this was late 90s. Wow. Yeah, and I won the race. And, and so, I mean, this goes back to success too, because I had to prove myself, right? I had to prove myself in races Mm. And it was really nice being a beginner at an ultra marathon and winning. Yeah, I bet. So I have a, I have another podcast, the mindful wealth podcast. And my co-host is a Canadian elite athlete in jujitsu or, or judo or something like that. She draws a lot of parallels between her athletics and sort of financial success, you know, athletic success, financial success, you know, financial success is about savings and investment and building wealth and athletic success is about medals and, and winning competitions. Do you see a lot of crossover there? And have you learned those lessons internally? Oh yeah. Um, lots of crossover there. I was always, when, when I grew up, so, you know, my father had not enough, not enough financially. I was not enough in all kinds of other in all kinds of other areas. So, you know, finances were fine, but it's like, I was never fast enough. I, w I never made grades high enough, you know, never enough in all of those respects. And mm -hmm. so I really pushed myself athletically to do more, to win at any cost, those kinds of things. And unfortunately, and this is how I got into yoga. I suffered a lot of injuries mm. because I pushed myself so hard. And, but I'm still running, but that brought me to yoga, all of the running injuries. Okay. Yeah. There's this theme of you, of, of you not being enough and it comes up. How do you think that held you back? And then how have you overcome that 
I'm just not enough, whether it's knowledge, athletics, speed, whatever it is, how do you overcome that? Yeah, I can't say that I've overcome it. I'm aware of it now, right? But I mean, I did certainly recognize it when I thought, so this was in my 30s where I found yoga and I'm in my 50s now and thought I was going to have to stop running completely because I just couldn't get over one injury to another injury to another injury to another injury. And so what I came to was I I started doing yoga and um, I wasn't running at all. And what I found was a piece that I'd never experienced before, for one thing. And I wasn't doing meditation at that time, but in a way the yoga brought me to a much different place in, in my mind as well. But I also got resolution over a lot of the imbalances and um, was able to start running again. So I consider yoga in a lot of ways a transitional point in my life. And it provided a lot of healing and affirmation that I was enough mm. the way that I was. Yeah. I know that you mentioned uh, at some point on a previous conversation that bef- you almost didn't open the yoga studio and there yeah. was something that was in your way. Is that, is that what it was or is there something else? No. Well, so yeah. So what happened there was started yoga when we were living in Boston. This was the second time in Boston and there's, yeah, we could talk for hours about all of this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we but, have one. So yeah, but came back to St. Louis. Um and I got more into yoga when I came back to St. Louis. And that's when I started working more deeply in academia as well, but came back for family reasons. And so the yoga continued and the trainings continued. And when I came back, I had the idea of something on my own running shoe store came to mind or yoga studio hadn't really come to mind, but I started doing more trainings in yoga, more trainings in yoga, more trainings in yoga. After the first intensive training, and these are like 10 day trainings, I came back and and there was a bug in me. It was like, I have to open a yoga studio. I have to open a yoga studio. And so you know that sat started actually looking at property and then I, you know, kind of put it aside after a couple of months, went to another training a year later, came back, same thing, have to open a yoga studio, have to open a yoga studio, have to open a yoga studio. And there was just this fear in me that I couldn't move forward with it. And this was, I was still wrestling with performance, success, right? My ideas of success. And I wasn't really listening to that inner, but what really makes you happy? You know, I was still working my part, my full-time job and not happy at that at all. Technology, academia, just not a good mix for me right then. It took me four years. It took me four years of continued going to these week-long retreats, coming back, want to open the yoga studio, want to open the yoga studio, and then just being like, nope, can't do it. Too risky. Too risky. Mm can't do it. You know, I got so comfortable in that paycheck, so comfortable and so um, risk averse that I just couldn't do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, something happened, a a visitor came. So this was a person who had been on one of these yoga retreats with me and uh, she spent a week with me and we looked at property. Hmm. And she really pushed me. And what I realized was no one was holding me back. I thought it was my husband. I thought it was my family. I thought it was, I was holding myself back. It was like 
four years of your heart just putting little things out there. Hey, you should do this. Hey, right. you should, it took four years for you to listen and say, you know what? You're right. I should do this. Yeah. Fear was holding me back and it was my own fear. No one else was holding me back. And so what shifted in me was I have enough. I realized that I have enough, right? I don't have to prove anything to anybody else. I am enough. I am enough. I am enough. And it's like, okay, you know, I can live within my means. We've got enough money in savings. I can reduce, you know, expenditures. I can do all of these changes in order to make this happen. And so we did. How does opening up the studio change your thinking or did your thinking already change about success and money and wealth? It changed my thinking a lot. So what I did do was there were no loans. This was all bootstrapped, no loans whatsoever to do anything. Got a great place, great landlord, you know, everything worked out that way. And so that was beautiful. And that was one of the things that I wanted to make sure happened that I wasn't in debt to other people because, you know, you take the valuable things that you learn from your family, right? It's like pay off your debt as soon as possible. Don't do that. So it's like, okay, you know, use that. But I wanted to move forward with what I loved instead of being beholden to some other entity where my soul was sucked dry. Right. So I was able to marry the two and just, you know, reduce my expenditures, bootstrap everything and do what made my heart sing at that time and made it happen. And yeah. I was going to say, how long did it take you to go from this point where you're bootstrapping and you're cutting expenses to make it work to be able to kind of grow the yoga studio to a place where now maybe you didn't have to cut quite as much and you, you had both your heart and some spending? Yeah. It took about two years yeah. to get to the point where I felt comfortable doing what I was doing. And actually I sold the studio. I sold it right before COVID hit, which the universe was speaking to me in, in mysterious ways at that time. Um, and that's when I transitioned to coaching, but it, yeah, it took about two years. And then I owned the studio for about six years. And the last two years I was thinking, I really don't want to be doing this anymore. Hmm. Well, I was of two minds. It was, I need a partner or I need someone to manage the day-to-day -day business because I really don't like that. <laughs> or I need to sell. Yeah. I, right? That's, I was, yeah. one of my questions was what, what did you enjoy about it? What did you not enjoy? About it? it sounds like you enjoyed the yoga, not so much the business management. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed the yoga. I, um, I'm a creator. I love to create things. And so in that, I'm a, I should be a serial entrepreneur because it's like, I have all these ideas and it's like, oh, you know, I'd love to do that. But then after a year or two, it's like, okay, what's next, right? What's right. next? Right. And so I digress on that. Tell us about your coaching practice. Like yeah. how, how did you develop the coaching practice out of that? How long was it after you closed the yoga studio that you, you know, developed coaching? Well, coaching came to me through a different way of coaching to begin with. So in the last year that I owned the yoga studio, I actually got into athletic coaching. So really mm -hmm. like coaching, coaching cross country. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Now that's a different kind of coaching, but I adored that and anticipated going into that in the spring. Well, in the spring, COVID shut everything down and that didn't happen. Uh-huh. So I had been looking at a performance coaching or life coaching certification for a while that 
was interesting to me. And it's like, okay, well, this is the time I'm going to pull the trigger on that. So ended coaching, cross-country coaching in November, December of one year, sold the studio at that time as well, and then got into the life coaching program in, I guess it was April of that following year and started doing that and pursuing that as coaching. And that coaching is... I mean, yoga is, is, is coaching in a way, but you're coaching more of people how to move and be with their bodies. Mm -hmm. And the thing about yoga is it's still body-based. You can see, and you can tell, okay, it's, you know, move your hand this way, pull your shoulders together, lift up the front of your pelvis, and you can see the changes on the mat. Life coaching is very different in that you can't always see the changes. You can ask a question and you can get the thought pattern. You can, you know, you can see the thoughts. You can, not, you can see the thoughts, but you can see a person thinking about something and you may get tears or you may get laughter or you may get, you know, nothing. And so I consider life coaching and the coaching that I'm doing now as next level yoga coaching or yoga teaching. Sure. Right? Where it's coaching the unseen. Yeah. So how has this next level affected your thinking about success and money and wealth? Right. Well, it brings me back to all of the teachings that I've had. In fact, this morning I was thinking, or over the weekend, I was thinking about contentment. Mm. Yeah. Contentment, not happiness, but contentment. And last week I was thinking about this too in a deeper fashion. And I posted out on social media and I said, you know, what, would make you really happy, like really, really happy. And what I didn't expect was the responses that I got, losing weight, money to pay off my student loans, lack of pain. I mean, those are some of the answers that I got, a beach vacation, you know, to have my loved ones out of pain, those kinds of things. And what I realized was how different I think now. Whereas maybe even just five years ago, I would have been like that too. And it's like, well, but it's not like that. It's from inside. I think most of us travel through the, if only this, then happiness trap. Unfortunately, I don't think we all graduate from it. And I still get stuck in it sometimes. I just could have the nicer car. You just take the, you know, yeah. first class instead of, you know, whatever, you know, I get that stuff. But then when you really sit down and are just quiet, you just realize that, hey, it's it's all of a piece. Like mm -hmm. the pain is part of it. It is it is an important part of it. And to honor that is, impo is important. Um, that, that actually brings up, how, how did you discover mindfulness mm. and actually sitting meditation? I know yoga is a form of moving meditation. How did you discover mindfulness and how has that changed throughout your journey? How did I first discover mindfulness? I mean, I've been a medit. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I know how it first started. I've been a practitioner of meditation for 15 years now, at least 15 years. And it started at one of the yoga retreats went on. Actually, the first yoga retreat that I went on. So I noticed that there were certain people who had something about them. And I would start asking them, it's like, you know, what is it? What do you do? And I would observe them. And what I noticed was they meditated. They meditated. 
and they would tell me about their meditation practices. And so, you know, I didn't really start it then, but I was like, oh, there's something there. There's something really interesting to me and it seemed really new and scary to me at the time. And I started dabbling with it. I started sitting in meditation, you know, listening to meditations, getting books on meditation, you know, as if you can learn by osmosis. That doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. But it started really interesting. It started really being interesting to me. And so I started doing it. And it was kind of hit or miss. And I started listening more and really thinking about it. And what I noticed was when I meditated on a regular basis, I had a sense of ease about me that I'd never experienced before. And this was very different from the yoga. The yoga is a, more of a physical practice and you get that relief and, but then you're back to kind of wanting again and, and needing. And the yoga started to have profound impacts on me, especially on my running. I started meditating in the mornings before I would go out for a run. And those were the days where I just had this sense of complete ease and bliss. Like I'd never felt before. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I want more of that. And so I you know, gave myself the benefit of that and started studying more, going through mindfulness trainings, not certified in mindfulness, but many, many, many eight week, even longer um, trainings um, online, not um, in person yet, but I, I, I will do that. But it gave me a sense of ease and I can't say purpose um, and challenge really, it's still a challenge to sit in meditation but it's given me profound insights into things that I never knew existed within me and within other people as well. It has given me the ability to be a better coach. That alone. Talk a little bit about your coaching process. And we could just shift and talk about meditation and the benefits of meditation for the next two hours. And I'd be happy doing that, but I'm, I wanna actually get to the stuff that you're coming on to talk about, which is, you know, tell us about your coaching practice and the kind of people you help and work with. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you're asking this because I'm in a branding workshop right now. And so I'll, I'll practice a little bit with you, but really high level, I help um, older adults. So adults 50 and over to feel their youngest by improving mm. their relationship with food, movement and mindfulness. Mm. And, and especially mindfulness, because I feel like mindfulness precipitates all the other things. The totally agree. Yeah, the, totally choices, agree. the choices that we make in our life are brought on by the mindful nature that we assume. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, I think we spoke about this a little bit, but I've shifted my entire practice. I, you know, financial planning is what I've done for 25 years. And I'm actually realizing how much more important teaching meditation and mindfulness is than picking investments or doing financial planning. It is the core lesson that you can take, I can take, my wife can take, my kids can take, my neighbors can take to improve any element of their lives. Like it's, it's, so, it's that powerful. So I'm right there with you. Is there, so 50 plus mm -hmm. food, movement, and mindfulness. So do, have you become a meditation teacher as well? Or is it one-on-one -on -one, or is it group or how, how do you, what's your process? Currently it's one-on-one -on -one and okay. it will be group. I don't have enough people yet to offer group yet, but one-on-one -on -one, and I work with a variety of different people, love them all for sure. And some mindful eating, shall we say, or mm. you know, disordered eating patterns. 
Some, they come to me for weight loss specifically, but there's always the element of mindfulness. It's never like, okay, eat less, move more. It's, it's not like that at all. Some it's productivity, you know, I'm just the different types of people that I work with, but it all comes down to mindfulness. It all comes down to your approach of things, how you, how you think about what you're doing. It's not about what you're doing, but how you think about what you're doing, how you're planning things out, how you're approaching everything in your life. And as I talk to people, what I realize is, or what they realize, I should say, is that it's all interconnected. It's like, oh, and you probably talk to your wife that way too. And they're like, yeah, right. And oh, you know, what about your work relationships? It's like, oh yeah, there too. You know, but everything, how we, how we think affects everything that we do in our entire lives. Right. So you have to slow it. You have to slow that down so that yeah. you can understand it so that you can, so it gets easier to manage it, like to, to make better decisions and things. Yeah. Could you, I want you to simplify, I ask everyone to do this. If you listen to one of these episodes that you'll know, you'll expect this one, simplify it for us. Like if you were sitting with somebody, maybe it's a potential client and she wants to know what she could do. Um, what is one thing that you would say, do this for better, more personal financial success. And then the flip side of that is what's one thing they could stop doing uh, that would also lead to more personal financial success. Personal financial success or do you personal mean- or financial, personal and financial success? Mm. A thing to do and a thing to not do. <laughs> One thing to do would be, and I'll just say invest more. You can think about investment in any way that you want to, right? Invest more. Meaning put more in, whether it's financial or relationship or what just put more in put more in put more time there yep yep beautiful and i would say to do less is the word numb comes to mind diversions distractions um, distractions diversions numbing and i'm guilty of it too you know right around the holiday you get these emails it's like oh 15 percent off here and 30 percent off here and i drop everything and i'm over at that site shopping you know window cart or window shopping it's like diversions and that could be i mean that could be the shopping or it could be alcohol or it could be doom scrolling through facebook right. or yeah, all that stuff right but distractions it's like and that's where the mindfulness comes in it's like you know notice right so you stop the distractions in whatever way that you need to, you know, my phone is right there and it, but the distractions, the window's right there. It's like, oh, who's going up and down the street? And all of that takes you away from being aware and listening. I mean, one of the fundamental lessons of mindfulness is, and every, I, I don't know, you've probably worked with people that said, yeah, yeah I, I tried meditating, it didn't work for me. And then you kind of have to say to them, that's the point. Right. You have to try more and more and more, and it eventually does. It gets e- it's never easy, but it gets easier, right? And then you do see those spaces, and you do see when you get distracted, and you can avoid the distraction some, but it's you have to do it and keep doing it. It's so powerful when you do it. It's so frustrating to me when I see people give up. Like, oh, crushes me. Yeah. Well, I won't go into that, but, and this ties back into, it does tie into finances too, because, you know, if you save more, invest more, obviously, you know, finances, but the distractions can be things like lack of awareness 
of where your money's going. The distractions can be, you know, financial advisors with whom you don't agree. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, who do you trust, right? Is it a big firm and there are distractions there because you don't have a, a trusted partner? Or are you investing in mutual funds where you really don't know? I mean, I consider mutual funds a distraction. It's like, I don't know what's in all of that. It's like, give me a stock. Or, <laughs> you know, put money in the bank. I can see that. But distractions can be so many things. It just depends on how you think about the distraction. Distractions are the shiny new objects. Bitcoin. (laughs) Not new anymore, but still shiny. I mean, there's a car in the garage. Do you really need another car? Right. The house is good enough. Do you need that other one across the street that is going to cost twice as much and has a pool? Do you need that? At at Um, the same time, I mean, I work with people and their money at the same time. Just like we all have mm, a process of awakening in our employment uh, with our relationships, you know, we learn maybe you do want that other thing. And it's, it is okay to want the other thing. Uh, I don't ever want to take that away from anybody. It's just make sure you're making the right trade-offs and you understand what those trade-offs are. And you're being mindful of the choices you're making, right? right. Well, and this, this actually ties into, um, here's a book that I still have to write, but the book title is, I have that, The Puzzle Rules and Other Things My Father Taught Me, okay? Say, say it one more time. The Puzzle the puzzle Rules. The Puzzle Rules and Other Things My Father Taught Me. So growing up, he taught me, he taught me um, to put together jigsaw puzzles. And the idea was, it was, you, you did the edge first. And so the yeah. edge is like this vision, this goal of where you want to go. And that's what you did first. And so this ties back to um, the house. It's like, okay, you know, know your goal. And if that fits with your goal, great, go for it. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Know the plan. Know the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I'll finish the story about the puzzle rules. You, You start with the edge. You put that together. So you have your goal. You know where you're going. And then you start to look at areas of, um, well, then you, you like identify the landscape. So you turn over all the pieces. So you identify all the pieces, like it's a brainstorming kind of thing or scratching. You get mm. all the pieces turned over and then you identify what's the target area. What do I want to work on first? Right. Is it this little corner here because it looks easy? Is it that little spot because there are bright colors there and there are not very many of them? But then you start picking things off. Puzzles and the instructions for life. I love it. What's it, What's the name again? The title? The puzzle rules and other things that my father taught me. I love it. I love yeah. it. I want to I want to come back to something personal again here just before we wrap up. Is there anything people don't know? Maybe you've told them and they don't remember, but is there any people that don't know about you that you really want them to know? Yeah, one thing came to mind there. I've struggled. People think, "Oh, you know, you're so successful, you have a nice house and a nice career and, you know, you're a coach and you've got a master's degree and a husband and never been divorced and blah 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 blah." blah. I've struggled a lot. Mm -hmm. and especially in these past five years. And I think that's one of the things that has made me the person and the coach who I am is that I get it. Life is hard. Yep. Yeah. And so that's it. I've struggled a lot. Yeah. You have to embrace the suck at some point. If you, uh, uh, last, last little bit here, if you could get the truth 
about a single question about your life or the future of your life. And all you had to do is ask, what would the question be? I can't give you the answer, but I'm just curious if you can frame the question. The question that comes to mind is what makes my heart sing? Hmm. Do you know the answer? What's coming here is, is um, space, absence of, of clutter. Yeah. Space. Mental. Space. Yeah. Yeah. Mental space. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, how, how do people connect with you? Where do they find you? Yeah. Um, you can go to my website, julieberfeld.com. That's probably the easiest way. And I'm on social media, especially Instagram. And um, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. And you can find me, uh, Julie Berkfeld Coaching. Okay. Yeah. Julie, thanks so much for coming on. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure to go about mindfulness and see how that sort of goes through everything. And I, and I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Thank you.